every single person has raised the biggest funds that they've ever raised before, right? The funds just get bigger and bigger. And, you know, I, I think everyone's waiting for the right time to pounce back in. But what I think is going to happen is no matter, it doesn't matter when people start investing, they still have a finite in time to invest, right? And the, they have to allocate that capital. So it's going to flow back in. I think it's going to, the floodgates will open whenever it does happen because they have lost time to make up for, right? Now, does that start to drive pricing back up? Probably, right? Because now there's going to be a ton of capital. So I, I do think in times like this, it's probably great buying opportunities because there's not a lot of people that are active, right? And it's a good time to scoop up deals, good deals. If you have the capital available and you have dry powder that you have that discretion, it's a great time. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. If you're anything like me, you're constantly reading. And if you're tired of sifting through dozens of online blogs and Twitter feeds to get the commercial real estate news you need, subscribe to the CRE Daily Newsletter. Think of this email like your smart, no bullshit friend breaking down all the biggest stories, acquisitions, trends, and fundraisings of the day and compiling them into one digestible email that you'll actually enjoy reading. This newsletter is now read by over 65,000 real estate investors, brokers, developers, and deal junkies. The CRE Daily keeps you informed on the top national, regional, and property sector news that matters to your business without all the BS. Give it a try by subscribing free at CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years. And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5 and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Black Wings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community driven, locally different since 1935. Samir, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Pleasure to be on. Let's just start with a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to doing what you're doing today. 
Yeah, so I started investing in multifamily in 2013. I bought a duplex for $20,000 in Lakeland. It was a short sale, kind of like when the you know, market just started to rebound from the GFC. I didn't know anything about real estate, went on bigger pockets and YouTube and learned how to, you know, re- do the renovations on my own. I was killing cockroaches with like homemade concoctions, <laughs> walls and, and made cabinet doors. And I had my girlfriend at the time was my wife now help with those renovations. And she wasn't very happy. But look, we learned a lot along the way, fixed it up, sold it, bought the one next door and then and bought the quadplex and then bought an eight unit building and then 12 and then 50 and then 100, so on and so forth. And and here we are today. Now we've got just over eight thousand units. We'll be one point seven billion in AUM. We we operate in Florida, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. Have twenty seven employees. So it's been been quite the ride. Just a little bit of growth in that last nine years. <laughs> <laughs> were you at a corporate? Like, were you working the time you bought your duplex, or did you quit everything to jump into real estate? So funny story. I. Went to Florida State, Indian family, right? Come come from Indian background. My parents wanted me to be a doctor. I did pretty bad, you know. And then probably my senior year, I had my one probably one or two semesters left. I was like, you know, I don't want to do this. I, I, it doesn't make me happy. I don't want to be a doctor. Got into an argument with my dad, and I dropped out of school. <laughs> so never never got my undergrad, and went back to Orlando where I grew up. Ended up getting a restaurant job. I was serving tables at Rainforest Cafe at Disney and <laughs> and then NBA City at CityWalk. Got fired and stumbled upon a sales job selling vacation packages for timeshare resorts. So that was when I was probably 20, 21. Ended up leaving that company and starting my own business selling vacation packages at 21 years old. 22 maybe. I was 22 years old. And then the business did really well, saved up some money. And then my dad was like, look, you know, all wealthy people invest in real estate. You know, most people that are billionaires and millionaires are all, you know, they, they have passive income and you should really go for mailbox money. And so that's what started, you know, me buying a deal was really, you know, my, my goal was to get up to maybe, you know, $10,000 a month in passive income and you know, have kind of a side gig. And then next thing you know, the the whole business ended up having a mind of its own and, and took off. So ended up quitting or selling my, 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 my vacation package business and went full-time into real estate shortly after. All right. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it. What is it about the Indian culture that wants kids to become doctors? Because I've actually had another good buddy of mine, Rohan, that was on the podcast. And I think he had a, maybe it wasn't Rohan, it was somebody else, but he had like a, a very similar thing that you said. Is it something that like you're told from like young birth, like since you're a kid or like, what is it? So that's a great question. And, you know, I, it took me a long time to think about as well. And, and, and I think now as an adult, right, you look back and, and I'm a new parent now and, you know, like, why, why, why is it just doctors? There's three, there's three professions, really. It's doctor, <laughs> lawyer, engineer, right? There's nothing outside that box. Like you, within this box, you have three choices, pick one. And, and this is, this is honestly what it is. So it, it, 
you have uh, we're like you know my my age group is now for we're all first generation americans right so you have you have all these people that have come down or our parents who are immigrants they come from you know india directly a lot of them were forced you know even if they were doctors or lawyers back home their degrees don't mean anything here so they in turn have become entrepreneurs right and and which is a, true for a lot of kind of asian asian immigrants and i think for them it's the struggle of entrepreneurship, there's no guarantee of income, right? It's up to pounds. So the one way to guarantee you're going to make money is to go to school, get educated. Doctors, lawyers, engineers are very high paying guaranteed jobs, or they were, right? And so you can come out of school, you can get a job, you're making a couple hundred grand a year, and your, your family's solid, right? And then if you want to turn that into a business and start your own medical practice, you can take it that route. So I think that's just kind of in a box is is how they think like okay this is is a surefire way to succeed and be safe right so look there's always good intention behind it i think now that again there's good intention but you know had i known look finance makes just as much if not more you know i probably would have been like man dad i should have been you know should have went the hedge fund route yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right i just had to ask that well, I feel your story a lot. We have a we have a similar story in kind of starting with the duplex and, and going on from there. What was, I guess, okay, you had success on the first couple and you said you kind of kept moving up chain. How were you financing as you kept moving up chain? Like, when did you kind of turn this into a full-time business where you started hiring? Like, what was kind of the, the moment or moments? So, you know, back, back when we started in 2013, it was still pretty difficult to get financing, especially from banks and stuff. Oddly enough, I had messed up my credit in college. So I had this $700 credit card, went 60 days late, right? And this is when I was 18. And then because of that, yeah, like it was a $50 payment, right? And my dad would always tell me, like, look, credit's the number one thing, right? It's one of the most important things in this country, right? You have good credit, you can do anything. So I couldn't get a loan. I they couldn't get a real estate finance. But so the combination of both of those factors, so I was buying... That's why I was buying these cheap small deals was because I'd have to buy them cash. Yeah. I was buying $30,000, you know, properties, paid all cash. And then eventually, once that late payment fell off and banks started to get a little bit more lenient, I found a bank, I think it was BB&T, they did a blanket loan just to take out on all of my assets. So finally, I was able to kind of refinance everything, had a nice chunk of capital now use that as a down payment on my first kind of larger multi-deal, right? And that's how kind of we started to really grow. I would say we didn't hire our first employee until 2018, which was it was five years after we started. And that was really our first institutional deal we did. We ended up finding a large deal. And at, at which point we were like, look, we were we may be, you know, it's glad we're glad we got this done, but we don't want to be in over our skis, so we got to bring someone else with experience that can really manage this asset for us and, and has strong asset management expertise. And, you know, kind of get the, the level of reporting for our investors and whatnot up. Were you were you managing all along, or were you third party managing throughout all that? You know, so I'd say the first three hundred units I bought, which is a lot of duplexes and quadplexes, we managed ourselves, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And and you know, for a while, I was like, look. Maybe real estate isn't for me, you know, and and this isn't fun. I'm taking toilet calls and, you know, like this isn't, this isn't really what I signed up for. It's not as sexy as people think, right? I, I didn't even know you could third party it. And then finally, someone told me, so someone comes around, he's like, you know, you only got to pay like 
five percent, and I'm like, really? I'm like, that's so <laughs> worth it. And and then I, I went, we got a property management company, and you know, it was I was all blue skies after that. I loved it. You know, like, and I got to really focus on what I like to do was you know finding good assets and repositioning them. All right. So when you when when 2018 hit and you started moving to like institutional size deals, I want to spend like a little bit of time on. And, and I'll give you a little backstory on my end. When we decided to get into industrial in 2016, we hired two teams. We hired an industrial team and we hired a class B multifamily team. And our whole thing was either we're going to do both, maybe we'll do one, or if there's a clear winner, like we'll go there. And in 2016, our biggest issue, and we were talking about some of our mutual friends that we have, like every multifamily deal is a big deal. Like you just buy a 200 unit deal. It's just the number is a large deal. And we just kept running into like, you haven't bought one yet. Like you've never done a $50 million deal. Like, and we just, but then on the industrial side, it was still kind of new. The deal sizes were a little bit smaller. We had a lot more room to run. So how did you kind of make the jump or like convince people to give you that first deal in, in a market where it was already pretty hot in 2017, 2018? It's a good question. So prior to doing that deal in 2018, the largest deal we had ever done was two and a half million bucks. So we jumped from two and a half million to 40 million. <laughs> um, and, you know, everyone was like, it was, it was, so I, I was living in Orlando. I moved to LA and, you know, one of my best friends, he was in the private equity space. He just passed away last year, but he was in private equity. And, you know, I'm talking to him about what I do and the returns we generate and the business. And he's like, look, you know, you could really scale this, right? There's a lot of institutional equity out there. But they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna write two, three million dollar checks. It has to be over ten million. So, if you find a forty million dollar deal that's appetizing, there's probably enough capital out there for you to to chase that will chase it. So I tied up this deal, and everyone's like, "You don't have a track record, right? You've never done this before. How are you gonna do it?" And I kind of used my my cold calling background and went down a list of thousands of people, right? Emailed them, called them, and finally there was just there was one group that was you know willing to take. The, the risk, right? Albeit they, they, the economics were probably a little jacked and, and, and more favored on their side because of the risk they were taking as us as an operator. But, it, you know, they put covenants in there to where if we weren't hitting our budgeted numbers, I'd have to move to Atlanta. You know, like we, we would have to spend at least 50% of our time in Atlanta and, and all this kind of stuff. So, so they were protected. But, you know, it was kind of, I, I would say just I want to say dumb luck, right? We found one group that was willing to take a bet. And and I think the deal was a very, very good, solid deal. So, you know, then once once you get that one under your belt, then it becomes a lot easier. But then it is one of the biggest thing is like, okay, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? How do you get institutional? How do you get the track record if no one's willing to, to do it, right? So that's kind of how we, we, we jumped into our first one. I want to talk about like, It'd be interesting. Like if we had done this podcast six months ago, we'd be having a different conversation. So we're not going to get to today yet, but let's just like kind of continue from 2018 to 2021. You grew a ton. I mean, you bought a billion dollars or more in a three or four year period. Clearly things were going right. You're in a good market. Let's just talk about like how you were sourcing deals. What, what mattered to you? I love the markets that you're in. I know real estate isn't total rocket science, but like what was driving you to do the markets you were doing? All the markets that we've we've chosen, we're 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 demographically driven, right? So what we're looking for is a kind of a healthy business environment, B population growth, 
job growth, uh, rent growth. So all those drivers have to all be there, right? And, and you know, we, we invest in the Southern Belt, so Florida, Texas, Georgia, Carolinas, Arizona, Nevada, all have seen positive trends. And I think you, we saw COVID kind of speed all the trends that were already happening, is what I like to say of Dallas. You know, those are markets that were already growing, but I think COVID kind of sped that up a little bit. So, you know, that that's really how we pick our markets, right? We want to see growth and, and positive trends. And then also, you know, equity, our equity sources, they'll tell you, they'll be like, look, these are markets we like. This is why we like them. You know, and kind of you start to say, okay, well, we're going to start looking at these markets as well. Okay. Our, did you, we kind of stopped the property management conversation at 300 units. You didn't like it. I'm assuming you moved to third party. Have you stayed third party all the way through or is that now back in house? No. So we, we've stayed third party all the way through. And as we continue to grow, we have this internal discussion about whether or not you know, does that continue? At what point do we bring it in? Do we ever bring it in? Right. I think those are conversations that should be had, you know, but for different reasons. Right. I don't I don't think it's ever a, a, a revenue source, really, per se. Like, I don't really know anybody who makes money on property management, but it is a control thing. Right. I think you have a level of control. So TBD, I think for us, like if we did do it, it'd probably have to be closer to when we're at 20,000 units for it to really make sense, right? And, and and do that. But like look, it's a it's a whole different business, right? So I think it's a it's a you know HR nightmare. And you go from, you know, right now we have 30 employees to go from 30 employees to a thousand employees overnight. I mean, that's that's a lot, right? So it's kind of one of those things that fundamentally is that something we want to do. So are you just are you working with the same like a national manager that's following you into every market or do you have different managers depending on what market you're in? No, we have different managers. So, you know, we our our portfolio is is scattered across the country. And so and, and we have different asset types where, you know, asset classes, let's say we have C, A, B. So we try to find the best for that submarket and for that asset type, right? And which you sometimes it's a smaller player in the market or sometimes it's a national player. And how we like how will you know in that market that it, like I guess, what do you look, if you're going to a big market like Dallas, are you just going to run an interview process of the top five and kind of pick who you're best? Or is there something you're really looking for? Because for you, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm digging just because I think you know this, like the manager is so critical, especially in the multifamily space where you're dealing with hundreds of tenants and people and, and like what gets you comfortable with somebody? Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think it's a, you know, experience or, or having units within that market like we have we own a couple of deals uh, the walnut deals in like the north highlands area right and and there's a company indio they manage everything in that, that location right so we're comfortable with a group like that um so really and look they all management companies all give the same spiel right so it's hard to differentiate on an interview i like to get references right and and luckily you know we're all friendly with other owners right it's kind of a very ancestral business even yours, I'm sure you can talk to other guys and say, hey, look, have you worked with these guys? If you have, and what's your experience been like? Would you work with them again? Would you refer them? So it's more, I would say that's probably more important than what you're getting from the management company is, you know, talking to people that are actually using these groups and, you know, getting candid feedback. Okay. What would you change if you could change one thing about this group? What would it be? Right. What are your biggest pain points? And then what do you like about it? 
Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, CREmodels.com. That is the letter C, the letter R, the letter E, models.com. If you aren't familiar with CRE Models, they are a real estate financial modeling and due diligence firm that specializes in bringing an institutional process to small and mid-sized firms who are raising capital. Because of their extensive experience with large clients, they really make it easy to look professional and polished when raising debt and equity capital. If you have a substantial deal pipeline, use CRE Models for expert due diligence, lease abstracts, financial models, physical due diligence, books and records, and more. They can handle any property type from multifamily to commercial to self-storage or really anything. With CRE Models, we send them all the financial info we have on a deal and they will review and tell us what is missing. This really allows us to focus on the deal structure and we can trust them to jump in as they're an extension of our own firm. You can get in touch with CRE Models at CREmodels.com or call them at 201-252-7487. When you talk to them, remember to ask about their 360-degree analysis team and the real estate technology integration services as well. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy-to-use, all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. You know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them um, you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect or used to seeing. And so for years, we had either tried building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that, that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting. And it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. All right. You said you own CB&A. We don't have to go through every single one, but how are you creating value? Like pick a fastball deal for you. What's like an ideal deal for you? And then I actually kind of want to drill in on the C stuff a little bit, but let's let's maybe say B or A, like what's a what's a fastball deal and what are you doing once you buy it? So, you know, I think some of the A class stuff right now with rents as fast as they've been moving, that's probably, you know, there's so much loss to lease there and mark to market where you don't have to do much, if anything, and you just go in and you you manage, you know, better and and then you just capture the, the the rent growth that's been happening over the last year, two years, right? I think a lot there's a lot of opportunities still left in a lot of these deals where you go in, you know, the new lease renews at three hundred dollars over, right? And you spend zero dollars. So, I mean, that's something that we're looking for right now is kind of newer product that there's a good loss to lease story, and then B stuff. You know, 
Ideally, it's something that hasn't really been touched. Maybe they've done the exterior years and the interiors haven't been done. But I feel like at this point in the cycle, you know, a lot of the units have been touched. And you're probably 30, 40, 50% through on the renovations. You know, and the C stuff, probably a little bit heavier of a lift. You're doing, you know, more on the interiors and more on the exteriors. And, and honestly, it's getting a little bit harder to justify when doing some of the C deals because there's so much upside and you have so much rent growth in the newer stuff. And you don't have the deferred maintenance, right? So we've we've really made it a uh, a point to shift our focus from the seventies, eighties C class deals to nineties and newer kind of A B B product. When you're doing the, the B, or you're doing some of these, like, are you doing any like when you say doing interiors? Is it typical just like the typical package countertops, flooring, paint? Yeah, and and yeah, basically your your fixtures, countertops, flooring, appliances, right? You're doing the same thing across the board for all your units. So you mentioned thirty to fifty percent value add. Are you buying deals that have already had thirty to fifty percent of the units turned, or are you looking for deals and then your goal is to get to fifty percent of them turned before either a recap or a sale? Like, do you have a like a model there, or it's deal by deal? Yeah, so ideally we find something that's, you know, 100% classic. We'll go in and do 30 to 50% of the interiors ourselves and then recap or sell. We've got a bunch of stuff out in the recap right now market as well as that we're trying to exit. But then we'll also say, okay, you know, maybe X seller that we're looking at a deal, maybe they did a renovation, but it wasn't a full renovation. So we'll call it a partial reno, right? And then we'll say, okay, we'll take the other 50% to a full renovation scope to a premium level finish. And then the other 50% that the seller did, that is still left to be value added to the full full scope, right? So we can say, we show you what's possible, take the other 50% and, and take that up one more level. So we've, we've done a little bit of both. Okay, so you don't, since you're not doing property management in-house, and, and I'm trying to give some people an idea of how a great, like how a company is set up, I'm assuming you have regional asset managers that are driving the business plans on every deal. I'm assuming construction's uh, outsourced to the property management company or do you all do construction? No, we do construction management all in-house. Say our construction team's probably eight people, two, two high-level guys that are you know very, very experienced, come from, from big shops. We have, I think, seven asset managers. And I would say each asset manager has the ability to handle probably up to 10 assets. But we don't have that. We don't have 70 deals. We probably have 30, 35. So, you know, they're all handling about five deals each and they're all regional, like you said. So we have someone in, in Florida. We have someone in Atlanta. We have someone in Dallas. We have someone in LA that handles West Coast. So, you know, even though you don't property manage, it's, it, it's not a, a thing where, okay, well, you're just paying someone else. They're doing all the work. Really, they're just handling the the staffing, right? The accounting part of it. But you still have to hone in on you know, weekly, make sure that the operations are going the way they're going. You got to, you got to drive the ship. Right. And I, I think you still, you're still the one coming up with the plan, the program, uh, and the management company's executing, but there needs to be that oversight. On the, this is a really nerdy question, but when I think of having different property managers in different markets, do y'all send them the chart of accounts that you want to see for accounting so that accounting looks homogenous, no matter who you're using, or do you deal with you know, this group accounts differently than this group does. So, you know what, because of our, we have different equity partners, they have their chart of accounts that they want to see. So often 
you know, even within the same management company, there's different accounting, right? Which tends to be a little annoying sometimes because there's there isn't like a a, a a template of something that just across the board. But you know, every every partner has their own little you know. This is what we want. This is what we need. This is what we need in reporting. This is what we don't need. So deal per deal, it ends up being customized for the partnership. And you, let's say it's not a, like an A deal where it's a lot of just lost to lease and you're, it's a leasing play. Let's, I, I want to focus maybe on some of the B stuff. Do you have like a 90 day game plan going into each one? Like the day you close, you kind of mobilize and get going. Like what are the first, I don't know, 90 days to six months look like after you close a deal? What are you, what are you looking to get out of that first six months? So I think I think for a lot of these deals, getting the exteriors done and the amenity sets, it's like just paramount, right? Because it's hard to justify. You can go in and do a bunch of interiors, but people aren't going to pay top dollar unless there's a reason to, right? Okay, well, well, great. You know, I can get countertops somewhere else, right? And and but why am I paying more? So like day one, we have painters go in, right? We'll have we'll have people start the exterior painting. At least start showing people we're starting to do stuff, right? And then, you know, get, get the branding done, any, any clubhouse, you know, a playground, dog park, all that starts right away. We want to get that stuff knocked out within the first 30 days because we'll start the interiors then too. And, you know, by the time we get interiors back, we want to have a new product to, to give people and something that, you know, they feel good about, right? We feel good about. There's a reason why you're paying more, right? Explain real quick. We were chatting about it earlier before the podcast. How do you raise capital today? So now you've you own, you own a billion seven. Clearly, I don't think you've self funded at all. If you have, that's unbelievable. But how are you raising money today? Are you syndicating, high net worth, family offices. What what does a deal structure look like? Yeah, so our equity is all institutional. We work with a few family offices, but mainly institutional equity. So structure typically for us would be a ninety ten or ninety five five JV. You know, our, so our GP side of it, we used to, we started a GP fund a few years ago, which is how we funded our co-invest. And then more recently, we brought in a partner to the operating company that gave us $30 million of GP equity, took a small stake in the business. And, and that's how we're funding our, our kind of our co-invest. All right. Interest rates up, market crazy. Multifamily has been the darling. And I think the obvious is interest rates go up. Things are become a little bit, you know, they're not where they were six months ago. I really want to just get into like, how are you thinking about the market right now? Well, I think multifamily and industrial both have been darling. So we, we've both picked very, very good asset classes to invest, especially in an inflationary environment. Look, interest rates obviously have really kind of thrown everything for a loop. Capital markets has been in flux. You know, rates are going up, getting loans are harder, right? And you get your leverage is much lower now. So I think a lot of guys were doing, you know, 70% to 80% leverage deals six months ago. Doesn't really exist anymore. You're more 55, 60%. So getting deals just to pencil is hard, right? And, and I think you've got, obviously there's been cap rate compression over the last, 12 years. Now you have expansion going on. And I've seen movement, you know, between 150 to 200 basis points on the cap rate, right? Which is a lot. And and I think it's it's difficult to underwrite deals today because you don't know where the Fed is going exactly, 
right? And I think a lot of us were like, okay, this hopefully this is going to stop in September and the Fed's going to take their foot off the gas and, you know, things will start to stabilize and eventually come down or at least stay flat. And then this last announcement, you know, Fed's going to continue to be aggressive and today's CPI numbers are surely won't help, right? So the Fed, I'm sure, will continue to be aggressive. And so it's just, it's difficult to figure out where the market's going and, and look, do, do cap rates continue to expand, right? And so, you know, are we still looking for deals? Yes, I, I think there are great deals to be had. There's probably a lot more, you have a lot more choice right now and an opportunity to buy because the buyer pool is slimmed down and there's not much competition. And But I, I do think it's a time to be patient because, Things are going to get, you know, I, I think rates are going to go higher and, and cap rates will probably continue to move. Right. So our, our sense of view is we're, we'll do the right deal if we see it, but we, we want to be patient. Yep. Bridge debt, like a lot of the way, a lot of the value add plays in general were getting done. were you know, floating bridge that got you into a, a permanent uh, loan. On deals that are getting done right now, is bridge debt still in the mix or is that kind of dried up for now? non-existent like the the guys that are out there it's so for plus 475 500 right you just can't get that stuff to pencil and it, the clo market just doesn't exist anymore for those bridge guys which is how they 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 package their loans and whatnot so a lot of those players are just out completely if if they're not if they are you know if they're even playing really it's just 100 fanny freddy now even the banks which was a there, a lot of people were moving to, they're not really equipped to handle this much volume, right? So they hit capacity right away. So they've, they've allocated already more money than they can handle for the year. So they won't start coming back until next year. So really it's agency, right? You have to go Fannie Freddie today and Fannie Freddie's ca- tapping out at 55 or 60%. So what are the rates at 55, 60%? <sighs> you know, it's moving. I know the Freddie just sent out a letter saying they're, they're moving spreads by 15 or 20 basis points. But I'd say fixed is probably five and a half, maybe closer to six right now. And um, where was it at the beginning of the year? Three, four percent, you know, three, three and a half. And then floaters, your sofer plus the 300 probably, you know. So, so you know, again, things are things are hard to pencil right now, just given low leverage and, and high interest rates. Are are rents still moving fast? Have you started to see them slow down? Like I know it's market to market, but in general, like in industrial, I can say in most of our markets, rents are still continuing to move nicely. Obviously, if you just looked at rents, you'd be like, oh, the economy doesn't look crazy bad. And then you start looking at interest rates and you're like, everything's starting to stop unless it's the right deal, like you said. So what are you seeing kind of at the fundamental level? How are rents holding up? You know, rents are strong. The fundamentals are stronger than ever, I think. Look, is there some softening? Yes. Is it? But look, we expected that, right? I think everything we were buying, everything we bought in 21 or 22, you know, the thesis was, look, you're not going to see the type of rent growth. It's going to flatten out at 2023 anyway, right? You're not going to see 20% rent growth again. So even for those markets that have come down a bit, it's really not down, right? It's just not as strong as it was, you know, the last 24 months, which I don't think anyone... Uh, was expected to hold up but like florida florida our rents are stronger than ever right just like nothing's happening which is again it's a little weird because on the operational side everything's amazing right and then on the capital market side it's a whole different story but i think 
even the but even though things have paused on the capital market side because of interest rates, I think given the fundamentals are so strong, things will pick back up and probably go right back to where they were. I think everyone's just waiting for a little bit of clarity on where is where are interest rates going, right? And then once there's a little sense of okay, things are starting to slow down and there's we know where pricing is and where where pricing should be, then I, I think everyone will just jump right back in. Yeah, what's interesting, and I don't know where the Fed gets their inflation data. It's let's see, it's October thirteenth as we're recording this. It's like home prices are down, automobile prices are plummeting, inventories are starting to stack up. Like everything is teeing up for when we heard when I saw eight and a half percent inflation, I was kind of shocked because the, the major things are starting to go down. So who knows? But like we've learned, don't fight the Fed. It's, it appears like we're going to get at least another hike, maybe two. Hell, we might get 10 more. Who knows? Who knows? That's the problem, right? No one knows. But, you know, like even the, the CPI numbers, they, they have lagging data on the rent, right? The rent 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 increases are, are play a lot of part, a huge part in that, that data. It's six to nine months stale, right? So if you, if you if you take today's data, which is flattening rent growth, right, then we're not in a position to where I, I don't think it's as bad as we think it is. I know you don't have a crystal ball. If you did, you probably wouldn't be buying real estate. You'd be trading bonds or something where you could be, maybe be in the hedge fund world. But we were talking about this earlier, and I'm just curious how you think about it from the standpoint of if everybody's pausing, there's more dry powder kind of in the system than ever before. What we were talking about earlier is like if if the signal for everybody to press go again is cheap prices, that seems like maybe we're all... You know, it's like we're looking at this tidal wave that might be coming at us, and maybe it comes or it doesn't, and we're all kind of waiting for cheap prices. But as we talk about, you know, the fundamentals of leasing, we haven't even touched on like the lack of supply that's been built over the last decade. You think we're just going to have like a dead year where not a lot happens, and then we kind of pick back up again? It's it's hard. Is there anything you're seeing that you go, well, maybe if this happened, there could be a major correction in multifamily pricing? So, you know, look, I think, I think interest rates have already started a pricing. Pricing has adjusted, right? We've seen 15 to 20%, I'd say, in some markets from six months ago, right? So that's a, that's a huge drop. We were just having this conversation today internally with our team. And here's the thing is, is we, I think all of us optimistically thought, wanted to think that things would pick back up Labor Day, right? after Labor Day and people want to close out the year strong and, you know, end off with good numbers. That didn't happen. And then optimistically, we're like, okay, Q1, January, things will pick back up after an MHC. And then the Fed comes out, there may be two more hikes, right? Or maybe more. So now, now everyone's saying, okay, it'll be, you know, Q2. I I don't know when it is. And I, I think it'll probably be six more months at least before things pick back up. But what I do know is that, especially with all these institutions, they do have so much dry powder Every single person has raised the biggest funds that they've ever raised before, right? The funds just get bigger and bigger. And, you know, I, I think everyone's waiting for the right time to pounce back in. But what I think is going to happen is no matter, it doesn't matter when people start investing, they still have a finite in time to invest, right? And the, they have to allocate that capital. So it's going to flow back in. I think it's going to, the floodgates will open whenever it does happen because they have lost time to make up for, right? Now, does that start to drive pricing back up? Probably, right? Because now there's going to be a ton of capital. So I, I do think in times like this, it's probably great buying opportunities because there's not a lot of people that are active, right? And 
it's a good time to scoop up deals, good deals. And if you have the capital available and you have dry powder that you have that discretion, it's a great time. And are, and are your, is that what your capital providers are saying? Is like, look, bring us a deal if you find a deal. We're we're open for business. We're just kind of proceeding cautiously through Q4 as we watch the Fed. Yeah, and and look, honestly, I don't know how much of that is, you know, a. I think a lot of people are afraid to say or, or won't say they're out of the market, right? Because they they want to stay in the loop, and and I think a lot of people are window shopping and just trying to see where where the market is going and try to keep, keep a finger on the pulse. But yeah, I think, you know, from from what I've gathered is a lot of these institutions, you know, look, they have investors they have to report to, right? And they can't they can't justify doing a deal now. And yeah, it may be, you know, maybe, maybe today, instead of if the market ends up being a four and a half cap, and if they get a deal at a four eight cap today, they're willing to forego that small, you know, premium before waiting to see where things settle because if things end up going to a five and a half cap they can't justify why they did a deal so soon right because it's it's seen as risky right and then it's seen as okay well if they're they're also still trying to raise their next fund so they can't say well we're we're gonna wait and we're gonna be good stewards of your capital versus saying we're being aggressive and we're just trying to put it all out when we don't know where things are right when you said 15 to 20% down, are deals actually starting to trade there? Or that's just where everything would be valued if it was to trade? Like what sellers are really, when you, if you see a deal in the market right now, what do you, why are people selling right now knowing kind of what's going on? Or are you just kind of saying, if somebody were to sell, it would be marked down 20%? We're seeing some trades, right? So there, it's, it's all circumstantial. Here, here's the thing, because the market still moves so much. You know, if you bought the deal 24 months ago, you're still making a lot of money if you sell a deal today, right? Because look, you know, you've, NOI has gone up tremendously. Cap rates are still probably higher than when, when you purchased them. And so, you know, there's still money to be made. And I think a lot of people, you know, they may have a three to five year horizon or that, that, that time period's coming up, right? Or their loans are maturing, right? Well, I will say though, a lot of people are in the market to test to see where they're getting and the deals aren't trading, right? And sellers aren't going down. So I think I, I have a feeling like that the people that are actually selling and trading today, it's circumstantial. And which is why I'm saying I think if you do have dry powder, you could probably get some pretty good deals because as a seller, right, as an owner of properties, we were going to take out 15 deals this year, right? Now we're only taking out two because we know it's not the right time to sell those. And now if we were in a compressed cap environment, yeah, we would absolutely sell them. How do you think about, let's see, interest rates for like a home mortgage are like 7% now? I'm assuming that's going to be that's going to force a lot more people to rent longer. Like that probably hasn't made its way fully into the system yet, but again, some of these things aren't rocket science. Higher mortgage interest rates, people aren't buying, they got to do something, but like how are you thinking about the tailwind that high mortgage interest rates give to multifamily folks? Yeah, and and honestly, you know, it's 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 very real, right? I think that's one thing is in a especially in a recession and when interest rates go higher, I think, look, people need a place to live. Home buyers that were already might have been priced out of the market are for sure going to be priced out of the market now, right? They, they won't be able to make those mortgage payments and, and get those loans. So I think it, it bodes well, especially for the, the, the A and B class stuff, because those are your would-be home buyers that are now going to stay renters, right? And which is why I think the, the BTR space is so hot, right? Especially right now, and, and it'll continue to get even hotter as money continues to flow in. But especially now where, you know, families want more space and, you know, they, but they can't afford to buy homes, but still want to be in that 
transitionary may not be ready for apartment or may not may want to get out of the apartment but may not be ready for a home yeah it's an interesting time sure is i think what you built's incredible i guess let's just kind of end it on you're at a billion seven now i bet you pinch yourself some days when you wake up that this is what it's turned into sounds like you got to thank your friend the private equity guy that told you you could scale this thing where are you going to take this what's the next five ten years going to look like you know, we, we want to continue, like, I, I want to get to 30,000 units. I'd say that that's kind of the mark that we're at. We want to do development, development, something that we've been kind of eyeing on for a while. So we'd like to start some ground up as well. I'd like to start playing in some different asset classes as well, you know, maybe industrial one day or, or, or public storage, and just start to diversify a little bit. You know, BTR is another space that we're looking at at the moment as well. So just, just kind of, you know, going out within real estate, which is why I love it so much, because there's so many ways you could take this, right? There's not no reason to be, you know, kind of black and white and, and just do one thing. So hopefully we're a multifaceted kind of fully, full, full, fully dimensional firm that's, that's around for a long time. Real quick. What's BTR? Build to rent. Oh yeah. 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 All right, man. This was awesome. Congrats on all your success. I look forward to getting to know you better. All right, brother. Likewise, man. Take it easy. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.